5. We are finishing Hebrews 5, and this is where we'll take our leave from Hebrews for 2019. The next two weeks, we'll prepare ourselves in gratitude for Thanksgiving, and then Advent is right around the corner. So lots of exciting things happening seasonally here, but this is our last time in Hebrews for a little while. Let me say thank you to the worship team for the effort and the planning and the thoughtfulness they put in week after week to select music that is God-glorifying, that allows us to worship Him. It's not all about us or how we feel, but about the verities that we have as expounded from Scripture. Um, I'm thankful especially for uh, uh, Meg and Rebecca, who played And Can It Be? And if you would like to play that exact hymn that exact way at my funeral, I'd be pretty happy with that. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's the gospel right there. I was bound in sin and nature's night, and he awakened my dungeon with light and set me free. We sang just a moment ago one of my favorite hymns, and it's one that we sing well. When peace like a river attendeth my way. Spafford, H.G. Spafford wrote that hymn nearly 150 years ago. Many of you know the story for that particular hymn. Spafford, a businessman living here in the United States, sent his family off uh, from a coast city here on the east to the port of Le Havre in France. Halfway across the ocean, the ship containing Spafford's wife and four daughters is taken down by the waves. All four of his daughters die. 230-some other passengers die. His wife arrives in France and sends a telegraph back to the United States, two words, saved alone. He goes to meet his wife in France at the very spot in the ocean where the, all four of his children had died. He has the captain stop the ship and he writes this hymn, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows, and you'll not be able to escape the imagery here, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And then he says in the third stanza, and this is again one of these great gospel proclamations, My sin... My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. This is good gospel writing. Spafford, who had worked arduously to introduce his children to the gospel through the word of God, saw all of them in that moment reunited with their heavenly Father. And the children that they would have afterwards similarly introduced in their early years to the gospel of Jesus Christ through the word of God. But there's a little known story to the end of Spafford's life. Somewhere in his later years, he walked away from the gospel. I don't know if you knew that or not. He got into an argument with the pastor of his church and decided that he was going to try to overthrow the assembly. And in the middle of that tumultuous period is voted out unanimously by the rest of the congregation, starts his own church, starts his own cult, in fact. 
walks away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, walks away from the word of God, develops his own system of revelation whereby God is giving him new information, new facts, a new gospel, a new way to pursue salvation. He does away with the idea of the Trinity. He does away with the idea of the virgin birth. He does away with the idea of uh, atonement by substitution. He does away with the idea that you can come to Jesus Christ in faith and escape the wrath of God. In fact, he does away with the wrath of God altogether and sets up a very elaborate system of purgatory where most people spend eternity except a select few. Those who follow Stafford can find their way to heaven. It's a dangerous, devastating left turn for a man who wrote, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole. How could someone who writes such beautiful truth make such a dangerous, devastating, life-altering turn into untruthfulness and disobedience? This is the story that we have here in the book of Hebrews. There are a group of people who in the years following the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ have been introduced to the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But it is terribly, terribly difficult. And the author of Hebrews is writing to them and he's saying, don't fall away, hold fast with your very last fingers, with your fingernails, hold on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will be difficult. It will be arduous in ways you cannot comprehend on this side of eternity, but it is enormously worth it for the possibility to be sons and daughters at the table of God. Hold fast. How do we hold fast? How do we reach maturity? How do we attain this kind of spiritual discernment. How is it achieved? And that's what this passage is about here. Verses 11 through 14, the end of chapter 5. Before we get into one of the most complicated passages in the entire book of Hebrews, which we'll come back to in January. This is how I'm hooking a few of you back here for a couple of months. We find that there's a very simple principle laid out here for those who would persevere to the very end, that this spiritual discernment, this maturity, this having the ability to hold on to the very end is achieved through deliberate devotion to the Word of God. This book will get you through. God has given us the tools that we need to persevere to the very end. He is helping us in that way. One of the ways that he helps us is through this book. It teaches us how to navigate this life. It teaches us what is right and wrong. It teaches us what God requires from us. It's all right here. Spiritual discernment is achieved through deliberate devotion to the word of God. Now, what we find here, starting in verse 11, is that the author of Hebrews is having a really difficult time reaching his audience. And this is what he says. Let me go ahead and read these four verses for us. About this, verse 11, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Let's pause there for just a moment. About what? About what do we have a lot to say? Now, there's an awful lot going on here in the book of Hebrews. It's an intricate and complicated book. 
I think that all of us who have been over here uh, for the last few weeks have realized that Hebrews is one of the most challenging books to understand theologically what's happening here because it's so rich, it's so dense, there's so much going on and it's packed into such a small, tight space. I read this quote from a Tim Keller book recently. In a sermon Dick Lucas once preached, he recounted an imaginary conversation between an early Christian and her neighbor in Rome. Ah, the neighbor says, I hear you are religious. Great. Religion is a good thing. Where is your temple or holy place? We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. Uh, No temple. But where do your priests work and do their ritual? Well, we don't have priests to, to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priest, but where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice, and he gives us the favor of God. That's a fairly complicated idea. You can see how the Roman neighbor would have been confused by what's going on. Now, we have just had this discussion at the middle of chapter 4. We've been introduced to a figure called Melchizedek. Jesus is, we are told in that chapter and in the chapters that follow, Jesus is the greatest high priest that Israel has ever known, ever. And the author here doesn't compare him to Aaron, who would have been the head of all the Levitical priests. He compares him to this interesting, somewhat baffling, unknown figure back there in Genesis chapter 14 named Melchizedek, the king of Salem. This one to whom Abraham offers a tithe and In response, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. It's a fascinating, weird, hard-to-understand scene in the saga of the Old Testament. And applied here, there's something really difficult to understand about the Melchizedekian likeness of Christ in the New Testament. There's a weird Christological deep. We could spend a lot of time there. And the author of Hebrews says as much, this is really difficult stuff to understand. Right there, verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. And all of God's people said, uh, amen, right? <laughs> there is a lot going on here. It is really difficult. But he says it's become so much more difficult. Why? Since you have become dull of hearing, this is already hard, and it's become so much harder because you are not equipped to hear what it is that we're saying to you. So what he's going to do here, Barnabas is going to give us a little sermon in these four verses about how to hold on, how to have the tools, how to access the maturity that will get us through to the very end, but he does it in an extraordinarily confrontational way. The first thing we see is what they're not. It is obvious that the people to whom Barnabas is writing lack spiritual maturity. And he says that there are four specific indicators that demonstrate their spiritual immaturity. They lack spiritual discernment. We'll take a look at those. And then he gives us three things. Here's what you could be. If you would devote yourselves to the word of truth, here's what you could become. Here's what spiritual maturity looks like. And then finally he tells us, well, here's how we get there. So here's who they are now. Here's who they might be. And here's eventually how you can become and realize and actualize this new identity as mature followers of Jesus Christ. So he starts here first. Who are the readers of this letter first? They had become dull of hearing. They had become dull of hearing. 
It is hard to explain to you because you had become dull of hearing. Interesting, you have become dull of hearing. It implies there in the perfect tense that you were not always dull of hearing. There was a time when you were passionate about hearing the gospel and you devoted yourselves to his word. And it would have been much easier for me to interact with you, the author says, about all of these really complicated things. The message that I bring to you hasn't changed. But you have changed. The fire has been put out. The passion is gone. You are not who you once were. You have become dull of hearing. And if we were going to render that maybe a little more literally, we would say you have become without motivation. Some translations will even call this, I think, more bluntly what it is. You're lazy. You have become lazy. You can't be bothered to devote yourselves to the holy things revealed in God's word. You hear nothing. Now, uh, earlier this spring, allergies hit me harder than they had ever hit before. Threw me for a real loop. Uh, My hearing went out, stuffed up in my right ear, and then my left ear, then my right ear again. There are a couple of weeks I'm preaching on Sunday mornings and I can't really hear very well. And I feel like I'm just up here kind of making my way through the... I got an infection in one ear, eardrum ruptured. I got a prescription for a steroid and that didn't work and then I got a shot for a steroid and that didn't do anything and I'm taking mucinex and all those other things and my wife at this point is tired of hearing the word what huh what do you say and, and Grace was a little deaf herself and so like the two of us having a conversation we just needed to learn sign language that was the only way we were going to make it through and it's still never quite recovered totally now what we're talking about here When he says you are dull of hearing, he doesn't mean physically you're dull of hearing, though some of them might have been. He means that they had closed off a part of their hearts. They had put up the road-closed sign for the gospel that was being taught to them and preached to them and modeled for them. Spiritually, they were dull of hearing. They just wouldn't have it anymore. They were done. Whatever you're selling, I don't want any. Stubborn in that way. And the way that the author describes it, you're lazy. You're just too lazy to do the work, to open your ears, the ears of your heart and the ears of your mind and digest what it is that I'm giving to you. Secondly, in contrast to the Thessalonians, Paul writes to them in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in all you believers. Not the Thessalonians, excuse me, not here the author, uh, recipients of the author of Hebrews. They had become dull of hearing. They were also ignorant. They were ignorant. Take a look at the beginning of verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. You had to be taught all over again. You ought to be teaching this, but you don't have the faculty to teach. We have to go back to the very beginning, 101. Here is the basics of the Gospels to hear the oracles of God over again. The oracles of God are probably these books of the Old Testament that they had in their entirety, and even some of the books in the New Testament that were coalescing in the New Testament canon at this time. He says, you, you knew this stuff before, and now we have to go back and do this thing all over again. Uh, in, in our house, right, uh, I am 
one of the proudest things I am uh, of my oldest daughter. She is 10. She's in fifth grade. You have to learn your multiplication charts, right? And we have learned them in third grade, in fourth grade, and again in fifth grade. And they have finally stuck because that girl devoted herself night after night this summer to memorizing her multiplication flashcards. So if you need to know what 12 times anything is, she can let you know, right? But I remember at the end of third grade, we got tested on this stuff, and we had crammed a little bit. We knew them all. And then we had to learn them again in fourth grade, and, man, we forgot a little bit between fourth. And then we had to go back, and you say, you knew all of this stuff. And now we have to go back to the very beginning. Who Jesus is, what Jesus has done by his death and resurrection. We shouldn't have to start there every time. Why is it so difficult for you to embrace this knowledge? Now, uh, we know not everyone is given the gift of teaching. And, and we know that, like in James chapter 3, that not everyone should be a teacher. But I was reading this in 1 Peter the other day. This comes from 1 Peter 3, and I know that you know this verse, starting in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always be ready to give an answer. And what the author is saying here is, if this culture in which you live, maybe they're in Rome or wherever they are there in the Roman Empire, if they ask you the questions, you don't have any answers. You should be able to teach this stuff. And you can't teach anyone. It is the blind leading the blind. You should be further along the path here. What we are as believers is we are a culture of learners. We have a book here given to us by God. It is expected that we continue to grow in our knowledge and in our obedience. And for various reasons, they have stunted their own growth. They have closed the book. They have sealed off their ears and their hearts and their minds. They're learning nothing. Someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ and stops learning is in a dire situation. If we know, and I say this here as a matter of sanctification for those who we know are followers of Jesus Christ, if you are exactly in the same place, spiritually speaking, now, that you were a year ago or five years ago or ten years ago, a passage like this one should be the glaring red light going off in your brain telling you something is not right. We are a community that learns. The Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, is advancing us in knowledge and obedience. But not them. They've stopped. They should be able to teach and they can't. Thirdly, they are, by implication, infantile and explicitly childish. Take again a look at verse 12. For by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Now we know, we know from the way that the author of Hebrews has confronted 
the recipients of this letter that he loves them. He's called them dear brothers and sisters. He has spoken lovingly to them. He has reminded them repeatedly over and over and over again how much God loves them and how committed he is to bringing them through to the very end. But out of this love, he's confronting them. There is grace here and there is also a heaping helping of truth. You're childish. You're like infants. You have to go back to milk. Now, milk isn't a bad thing when you're a baby, right? You need that milk. But eventually, you reach a position in your life where you're no longer satisfied with that milk. I remember when we first got introduced to the idea of cereal. And we have a couple of babies in here. And uh, Annabelle was however many months old, and he started giving them a little bit more solid stuff. And Laura goes, all right, we need to go to the grocery store and get her some cereal. And I thought, oh, finally, maybe we can dial some Fruity Pebbles in some milk and give her something. That's not the kind of cereal we were talking about. Do you remember this stuff? It's a box of stuff. It's like flaky, uh, and it almost looks like you could pour it in the washing machine and wash your clothes with it. And you add a little warm milk to it, and it's just, it's mush. It's just absolute mush. Uh, And I don't know if it's just for the first time getting something with texture, but we gave it to Annabelle, and she could not get enough, right? I mean, just gobble, 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 gobble. And then we started adding just a little bit of applesauce or uh, a, a little bit of some kind of fruit something in there. And then gobble, gobble, gobble. Or a little bit of, oh, man, I remember the first time we bought a jar of sweet potatoes, like pureed sweet potatoes. Lost her mind, right? Now, it's Friday night in our house, and we do the same thing almost every Friday night. Uh, we have either cookout or pizza. We watch a movie. We have movie night. Now, we gave the girls a choice right now. What do you want for dinner? And we negotiated a little bit. We set it on pizza. And I went to Mario's, and we got a pizza. Hot pizza, cheese, pepperoni, all the stuff, right? And they gave us ranch dressing. The girls put an ungodly amount of that shakeable Parmesan cheese on top. So we find little, just on the kitchen floor, just cheese everywhere. I've got to sweep the whole. Now, imagine Friday night saying, look, girls, movie night tonight is going to be great. We're going to gather together in the... How would you like some of that cereal we used to have? I'll put a little sweet potato in it for you. (laughs) Ugh, Dad, that's gross. I don't want any of that. I know you don't. My birthday's coming up in a couple of weeks. And maybe my favorite thing to eat in the state of North Carolina is at North Hills in Raleigh. There's a restaurant called Firebirds, and they have a chili rub Delmonico steak. And it is lights out. And uh, I don't care what I drink. I don't care what the sides are. I just want that thing medium rare, piping hot, and I mean just juices and all the rest. And it's, that's a good piece of meat. Now imagine I walk into the restaurant there on my birthday, and I sit down, and they hand me the menu. And 30 times on the menu, time after time, uh, would you like some of that cereal? We'll put a little sweet potato in for you. It's not what I want. The food imagery is evocative because it's immediately relatable. Everybody eats, some of us, multiple times a day. (laughs) And he says, "Uh, I don't understand. You should be teaching. You should be, you should want the Delmonico steak of theology and truth and practice in Christ. And instead, I'm still giving you milk. How are you going to have an impact for Jesus Christ? How are you going to fulfill the Great Commission? How are you going to teach these things to the world, reaching them with the good news that Jesus Christ has died for your sin and risen again, that by faith you might have new life? We've got to take you back to the 101, to the ABCs, to the 123s. That's all you know. It's milk. 
and it's milk, and it's milk, and it's milk. What does it say about you that all you want is milk? Fourthly, he says here, and maybe this is the most damning of all the condemnations wrought against him, he says, you are unskilled in the word of righteousness. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled. Unskilled in how to use this book. Incapable of using it as the incredible tool that it is. Um, we had a kid, uh, first year in seminary, I lived in the dorm. And he had a box. <clears throat> he lived in an old dorm, it was built in the 20s. And nothing was qu- quite... Um, level or square in this old building. And so uh, very few of us had doors that would actually sit open. They flung open or closed, right? And he has this box in the floor and he's using it as a doorstop. Um, buddy, do you, do you know what that is? And he's an international student. He's from Cote d'Ivoire. And he says, oh yes, they gave me some kind of thing. It has buttons on it. Somebody in the international ministry department. Well, well, yes, it is. It's a brand new Mac laptop. It's like a $1,200 laptop. I don't know how to use that thing, right? I go to the library. I get the girl. She types it in for me. (laughs) You're using one of the most incredible machines that has been produced for this work to keep your door from shutting of its own volition. (laughs) He didn't have the skills to use this incredible thing, and so he's using it for incredibly dull purposes. Some of us use the Bible that way. We have no idea what it means or how to apply it. We've closed off our ears. We're no longer listening. And it's become for us nothing more than a theological doorstop. You could be beyond this, he says. And then he casts a vision for what they could become. If we think about all of these things in terms of their positive and negative areas, he's already laid out the condemnation. He's already been excessively clear to them about where they are, but he also implicates here what they could be. If they're known by their immaturity, if they're known by their childishness, if they're known by their ignorance and their unskilled use of the word of righteousness, then the inverse is obviously that they could be teachers. If they would listen, if they would devote themselves to the word of righteousness and seek after the truths therein, they could be the one doing the teaching just like he is teaching them. Now, it's interesting. It's interesting how he describes it here. He doesn't just call it the word of knowledge. He calls it the word of righteousness able to distinguish good from evil. It's not just about what you know. It's about how you live. Do you see that? It's not just about accruing information. Virtually anyone can accrue information. I remember the capstone course, the toughest class maybe I had in my entire academic career. It's the Book of Romans. Harold Honer, the greatness of the scholar, is teaching that class. And I'm writing a paper, and I've been using the same commentary the entire semester. And man, I really like the way this guy writes. 700 and some odd pages of deep, intense academic work to bring to bear the truths of the book of Romans, which we are studying in its original language, line by line. And we get to the very end of this commentary, and I've been using it all semester long, and he gives a a brief recap of the gospel as described by Paul in Romans. And it is one of the most beautiful descriptions of what we find in Scripture that I have ever read. And I remember the corner of the library. I I was sitting there on campus, and and it it physically brought tears to my eyes to see the beauty and the rigor that this guy had applied in this little summation of the gospel. 
And then in the little paragraph that follows, the one that closes the commentary, he says, of course, I don't believe that any of these things are true. This has just been my academic life. If there is a God, and who of us knows, right? This is just what one guy, Paul, here thinks about. And it was devastating. What we are commended toward in the book of Hebrews is more than just knowing stuff. There are a lot of people who know a lot of stuff. There are a lot of departments filled with a lot of professors in a lot of universities who know much, much more about the Bible than I do. But it has not changed their lives. Their hearts are closed. They're dull of hearing. What we're being called toward here in the book of Hebrews isn't just a knowledge of the Bible. It's how to apply the Bible for righteousness, to know the difference between good and evil. So even here at the church, we have a bunch of kids. Half of our congregation is under 18, right? And we have Sunday school classes for all those kids, and they're down there, and they're being taught. And you know what? Our Sunday school teachers are wonderful but a first priority in evaluating the qualifications for Sunday school teachers, a first priority is not what you know. When, for example, Paul and I have a conversation about approaching someone to teach Sunday school, we're glad that you know the Bible. We want you to be familiar with God's word and know how to interpret and apply it. But that's not first on the priority list. What is first on the priority list is do they defer to the word of God? Do they believe that it's true? Are they seeking to apply it in healthy ways? Are they living what they say they believe? No warm bodies. That's not the goal. We want people who are obviously devoted to Scripture. And so that's where we start. It's helpful to know what's going on. You should know what's going on. If you're being trained in Sunday school yourself and in the Sunday morning worship service, you should have some idea of what's going on. But are you applying it? That's what we want to know. Do they defer to God's word? Do they love God's word? Do they obey God's word? Do they study God's word? If so, they could be teachers. We have this attitude sometimes, and occasionally I get this, well, I could never teach Sunday school because I didn't go to Bible college. I never went to seminary, and I know that so many in our congregation did. That's a wonderful thing. But it is not the determinative factor for whether or not you teach. Strive to live like Jesus, and we'll put you to work. Secondly, they could be mature. They could be mature. About this, we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing, for by this time you ought to be teachers. You could be. You need milk, not solid food, but you could be eating this solid food. You could be mature. You could be ordering off of the grilled meats menu. <laughs> You can see how he's already cultivating for them this identity that they could have if they would open their ears and listen to the word of God. They could be mature. Thirdly, they could have these powers of discernment for good and evil. They could by this time know right from wrong. They could have progressed in the faith and known how to, in wisdom and in skill, apply the word of God. We live in a culture that doesn't know. We live in a culture that isn't discerning. We live in a culture that doesn't know how marriage works, right? A uh, story from Florida this week. 
70-some-year-old woman, her husband died. She married the 30-some-year-old caretaker, right? And then they moved to Alabama or Louisiana, and she married his twin brother. And she was being taken to court for having two marriage licenses to these two twin brothers, and they don't know how marriage works. They don't know how parenting works. They don't know which bathroom to use, right? They don't know how to defend its citizens. Maybe the most unconscionable thing I read about this week was a mother in California gave birth to a child stillborn. She was a meth addict, had been on a binge just a couple of days before the child was born. The child was born, died, and she's being charged with murder. That's somewhat ironic coming from California. Permeate your baby's brain with a toxic chemical and you're a murderer. Ask the state to do it for you and you're an ardent defender, courageous of women's rights. They don't know how life works. They don't know how any of this works. And it is an unconscionable condemnation that the author of Hebrews has leveled against his audience when he says, you don't know how good and evil works. You don't know how righteousness works. You don't know the book, and so you don't know how to apply the book. You should be teaching, not just one another, you should be teaching this world that does not know. And you can't, because you don't know yourselves. But you could be beacons for discernment. You could be beacons of maturity. You could be the ones educating the world in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's cultivating for them this image. Here's what you could become. But we're left asking the question, how? And two things that are inferred from the passage. First, by listening. By listening. If they got this way because they were dull of hearing, then the way out is by opening their ears again. And of course, spiritually, we're talking about opening our hearts and opening our minds. If hearing loss was the inaugurator of their dilapidated state, then opening their hearts and minds to the truths and verities of Scripture are the way that's going to get them out. Saturate your mind with God's Word. Uh, this week, I had the opportunity to read the last couple of chapters of the book of Acts, and the way the book of Acts ends is startling, if you've ever read it before, because there in chapter 28, Paul has made his way to Rome, and he's preaching to the Roman believers there, and it ends with a citation from um, uh, Isaiah, I think it is. You have dulled your own hearing. You're no longer listening. You have forfeited the gloriousness of your fate. Because you will not listen. Same thing that the author of Hebrews is arguing here toward his audience. You won't listen. Start listening and know what it means to become mature followers of Jesus Christ. Know the book. God has given it to you. Read it. Listen to it. Now, th this is partly individual here, right? All the time. Everything you take in. Every song, every TV show, every podcast, every article that you read, every book that you work your way through, every piece of media that you encounter is forming how your brain thinks about good and evil. Everything is. You're not just occasionally educated when you say, now I'm going to pursue my education in moral philosophy. All day long, every day, stuff's coming in. 
and it's changing how you think and how you feel all day. It was interesting, uh, not that long ago I saw that the average teenager in the United States alone has 11 to 13 hours of screen time a day. 11 to 13 hours, either in front of the TV or on their phone, they're on the web, right? 11 to 13 hours. And for every single second of those 11 to 13 hours, they are being indoctrinated, positively or negatively. Now, we worked with a bunch of college students at the church in Texas. That was my job there, director of college ministries and young adult singles. And uh, we had a young lady, and um, she was just coming out of high school, seemingly devoted to Jesus Christ, and a year and a half later, her life had just fallen apart. And the big issue for her was that she could not believe that God would allow or disallow homosexual unions. She had a hard time understanding that God would be so mean as to disallow people of whatever gender that they love each other to get married. And um, it was interesting because I said, she came into my office one day and she said, you know, I just have a really hard time with this and, and I just feel like that's not who God is. Well, could you show me from the word how God talks about this? And she said, well, well no. But I've watched a significant number of episodes of the TV show Glee and I think that nothing has taught me more about love than a middling teen drama on the Fox Network has. Her worldview on the application of what is righteous or unrighteous had not been cultivated by the word. She had closed off her heart and mind to that and was allowing an incredibly secular producer of an incredibly secular television show to instead train her mind in what she thought was righteousness. You're being trained all the time. You are training yourself every hour of every waking moment of every day. You are. And you get to choose what you're training it with. And the author of Hebrews is saying, if you want this will to persevere to the end, if you want the tools necessary, God has provided them for you. But you have to avail yourself of the truth. In fact, I think this is one of the theological truths that emerge out of this passage. God is giving it to you, right? He's given it to you. Uh, imagine for a moment that I asked you to build a birdhouse, and I gave you a two-by-four and a hammer, and I said, build me a birdhouse. Well, that might be a challenge, right? <laughs> Let's say instead I sent you into Lowe's, and I gave you $1,000 in cash, and I told you to build me a birdhouse. With this current generation... 2019, they're sitting in the middle of Lowe's and they're on their phones and they're going, I don't know if I can do this or not. Because for 13 hours a day they're being told it's not really worth it. God has given you his word. He's given you teachers. Will you embrace the challenge of becoming a teacher yourself? Secondly, they could attain the spiritual maturity by listening. They could attain the spiritual maturity by constant practice. He says so in verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained, how? By constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Uh, read a book uh, years ago about Larry Bird. Larry Bird, absolutely tenacious uh, in the way that he practiced and the way that he prepared for games. 
There was one season in particular early on in his career, he injured his leg, and he had worked arduously to ensure that he could become one of the highest percentage free throw shooters in the NBA. And he was worried for the couple of weeks that he would be sitting out that he would come back rusty. He said, I knew it took constant practice to get to be like an 80-some percent shooter over those years of his career. And so he was staying at his mom's house. Mom was taking care of him. And he says, Mom, you got to get me off the couch. And they called the neighbor, and Mom and the neighbor drug, you know, six-foot whatever Larry Bird out into the driveway. And he goes, I need you to get me some basketballs. There's the old hoop that I practiced on when I was a kid, and I'm going to shoot free throws. But he couldn't stand up by himself. So they took a cardboard box and collapsed it and tacked it to the back of the garage and he leaned against the garage and he shot free throws, leaning on one leg so that he wouldn't get dull heading into the season when he came back. And his mom said, you know that boy stood out there with just a little light on in the driveway and shot free throws and I lost track around 2,000. And he did that every single day for weeks. So when the time came that he was called upon to help his team achieve victory by shooting some free throws, he was ready. Constant practice. Now, that makes sense for a player there. You might say, well, that's absolutely crazy. This is exactly what we're being called toward in using and applying the word of God. Constant practice. You should find it impossible to grow in discernment if you're appealing to God's word occasionally it requires daily constant practice to know and apply God's word last note here and I think this is a fair observation from the text our author loves the people to whom he is writing hopefully you've caught that throughout our study so far they mean an awful lot to him He calls them beloved. Beloved, not only to God, but to himself. But you notice that the way that he proves that he loves them is he does not allow them to go on believing things that are untrue. He does not allow them to continue to walk along a path which is obviously injurious to them. Uh, There's a New Testament commentator who says this about this whole scenario. There are those who would have hated his preaching. They would have found his preaching too negative. That people won't come to the church if he continues to give them such a hard time that maybe God is leading him somewhere else. But godly confrontation is grounded in biblical principles and goes with the territory. We must love, educate, and encourage In a healthy church and in authentic relationships within the church, confrontation is inevitable. The pain and awkwardness of accompanying such loving confrontation are not easy for anyone to experience, but no talk rules, if allowed to prevail, will lead to spiritual demise, turning a community of faith into a mere crowd held together by formalities. You should expect somewhere along the line here in your journey at Rocky Mount Bible Church, you should expect that if you're actually willing to let someone into your life, that they may confront you gently and lovingly and occasionally with how your life does not reflect the word that God has given us. That may happen. And you're going to have to fight like crazy 
not to throw up a bunch of walls in self-defense, but to realize that what they're saying to you is thoroughly and intricately biblical. That is one of the hardest things about living in community. When someone calls you on your unbiblical stuff and to go, are they telling the truth? What do I need to hear? How can I apply this to my life? And then also to be the person who occasionally confronts. I hate confronting people. I really do. If we're having a conversation and I've confronted you, I do not enjoy that. I'm not doing that because that's pleasant to me. I'm doing it because I love you enough to suffer the consequences of the awkwardness to have that conversation with you. Now here's how you can tell somebody has not understood the point. If they are smiling while they're tearing you down, right? That is not loving confrontation. And here's what I don't want. Somebody, somebody could erroneously apply this morning's message and become confrontational man. <laughs> I'm going to get all these suckers over the next couple of weeks. Ha, 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 ha. He gave me the, don't do that. But if you love somebody, you love your spouse enough, you love your kids enough, you love your church family enough, occasionally you might have to say, you know what? I'm not quite sure this is how God described this life. Here's a better way. I help you there with a word. Father,